Hey Kingdom Roots friends, Chaz here. Before we jumped into the sermon that we have for you from Scott, I wanted to let you know that in the next couple of weeks, we are going to be broadcasting previously recorded episodes that have been some of our most listened to, some of your favorite episodes as our listeners. So if you haven't had a chance to be able to listen to one of those, I want to give you a chance to be able to do that. And just to let you know, we're not doing this because like Scott and I are getting lazy or we've run out of things to say and talk about about really far from the truth. We're doing this because my family is going to be moving out to the Denver, Colorado area where we are starting a journey of church planting that God has um, been preparing us for and has got us started on, um, which will be a pretty long runway here before things will really get going, but um, we are are starting and making that move, so we'd appreciate any of your prayers, and um, if any of you are in Denver, hit me up. I'd love to be able to get to meet you um, in that area, but I'm really excited about that for us, and just wanted to let you know that we will have these episodes coming, but in the new year, we will be back in the saddle and back in a regular rotation, so just so thankful for you as our listener, and all that God has you doing during this very important season of Advent as we prepare both ourselves individually and our communities for the coming of Christ, which is the coming of the kingdom, and there's no greater thing that we could be a part of. So thank you for joining us today. Without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a sermon from Scott from the book of Revelation. Imprisoning dissidents. A dissident is not always the best solution for those who are in power. Frequently, imprisoned dissidents become the giants that they became because of the imprisonment. In fact, dissidents have used their time in prison to plot revolutions, to write books that rock the world, and to correspond with the free world in ways that establish potent networks. Some dissidents have used their time in prison to spend time in God's presence, to pray and to hear from God and to dream dreams and envision visions. Think of these dissidents who were imprisoned. Nelson Mandela on Robben Island off South Africa, who became who he became because of his imprisonment. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, whom we would never have heard from had he not been in the gulag. Martin Luther King, Jr., in a cell in Birmingham, Alabama. Thomas Cranmer, you know who he is? I know who he is. I read that big fat book about him, I don't remember. In, bo- in and out of Bocardo Prison, with recantations and recommitments, that led to the legacy of the English reformers. Dissidents are always powerless, marginalized, and incapable of doing much but being dissidents. Dissidents are not all imprisoned, but dissidents 
are also people who, who tend to imagine another world. Like writing a book that others find imagination for, like Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin. Alan Payton did this in South Africa in Cry the Beloved Country, and Dee Brown in Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Ralph Ellison did this in The Invisible Man. Many of us would add other people to this list, but these people had imagination to write a story that gave us imagination for a new world. Today we are going to look at a marginalized political dissident, the Apostle John, who plotted a revolution through imagination. That's what Revelation is, the book of Revelation. I will say some negative things about how people have interpreted Revelation, and I'm fit to defend what I have to say. (laughs) Revelation 1.9 reads, I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on an island called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In prison. John is in prison or imprisoned. A companion in the suffering, but also a companion, he says, in the kingdom. What an odd juxtaposition of terms. That takes imagination. On the island of Patmos, not a bad place to be imprisoned. I've been there. I cannot imagine it being a prison. But if you're a pastor in Western Asia Minor and you're on Patmos, you're away from your people, away from his churches. And there are several churches that he writes to that overlap with Paul. And there are discussions, wonderful discussions, none of which lead to consensus and conclusion, but wonderful discussions about the overlap of the Apostle Paul and John in Western Asia Minor with certain churches like Ephesus. He's alone. He's with God day and night for a long time. And he plots revolution with imagination. The book of Revelation was written by an imprisoned dissident. His book is still being read. None of you this year have read anything by Domitian. The dissident versus Domitian. Domitian is in power, and probably you know very little or nothing about the man. But we today are reading John, the dissident. This is a dissident who is writing for the culturally buoyant. If one reads Revelation's first two chapters, you realize that John may be a dissident about Rome, but he has resistance to what's going on in the churches of Western Asia Minor. Not all the Christians in Western Asia Minor were the dissidents that John was. They were privileged and happy and enjoying cultural buoyancy. John did not speak kindly to them. He utters harsh words of condemnation. He protested their cultural buoyancy. Like the churches of Western Asia Minor, 
we too are floating in cultural buoyancy in our world today. This is why we read the book of Revelation the way we do. We speculate about rapture. John sees it as protest against Rome. We need to hear that dissident on Patmos protesting. And if we need to develop some dissidents, we need to learn. He speaks of uh, people who have abandoned their first love in chapter 2, who have succumbed to flat-out false teachings, of sexual immoralities, of unfinished deeds, and lukewarm behaviors begotten in a life of wealth and ease. Such are the description of his churches in Western Asia Minor. And the reading of this text in Revelation 2 through 3, as prefaced by chapter 1, leads us to ask a question, are we dissidents today? Do we need to become moral dissidents about the way our culture is living? Do we need some theological dissidents? We really don't. The church is full of them right here. Do we need some church dissidents, people who look at the church and say, it's not right, it could be better? Do we need social dissidents, people who protest how our society is operating? Do we need structural dissidents who see powers that are imposed on people rather than granting the freedom that our Constitution advocates? Do we need political dissidents like Jay's brother in Australia, who would not say the Queen of England or the whatever, but said the President. Very subtle form of dissidence. He is a dissident. Revelation is not a bizarre set of speculations and predictions. Revelation is not about the rapture and left behind nor is it a guide to survival. You probably don't know that book unless you're my age. A guide to survival for those who are left behind. Revelation is not there so we can figure out who the Antichrist is. Do you know that people are doing this right now? I have to read this one for you. This is not really political, but it is. All right. I once preached a sermon at Trinity. It was the last one I was asked to preach. And I was asked to preach on 666 in the book of Revelation. And I demonstrated that Walt Kaiser, the dean, you know the German word Kaiser is translation of Caesar? I mean, this is getting really close to the Antichrist. I had his name added up to 665. It did not go well for about a week. Okay, now listen to this. Someone wrote this recently. Since Trump's election in November of 2016, many have linked him to the beast of Revelation and the number 666. They do this with every president. Noting, among other portents, that his election year, 2016, is the sum of 666 plus 666 plus 666 plus 6 plus 6 plus 6. <laughs> And that he frequently makes an okay sign that forms the number six. And that his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, his real estate company, 
is on 666 Fifth Avenue in New York. Oh, that's proof, isn't it? This is what people do with the book of Revelation when they are not dissidents. People who are dissidents take this book very seriously, not for exercises in speculation and prediction and identification, but rather as a warning, as encouragement. I had students when I taught at Trinity, from Yugosla- a student from Yugoslavia, who said the people in Yugoslavia, the evangelical Baptists that he pastored, loved the book of Revelation because it predicted the defeat of the powers. So unlike what goes on so often in the church about this great book. Revelation, then, is not for speculators, but for dissidents, those who stand with John against cultural buoyancy. The Christian in America who is not a dissident is a Christian in need of deeper discipleship, unless, of course, you live in Wheaton or Grand Rapids or Nashville, where it's all Christian. So what is a dissident? Who is a dissident? That's the question I want to ask today from the book of Revelation. Three characteristics of a dissident. Three characteristics that I think we need to pray ourselves into to become the sort of Christians we need to be in our culture. The first is found in Revelation chapter 1 through 4 and and verse 5 and verse 8, and that is dissidents worship God and therefore defy Caesar. They worship God and therefore defy Caesar. John says, from him who is and who was and who is to come, which if you're you're a Greek teacher is really goofy Greek, but you get the point. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, 1-8. Grant Osborne, my former teacher, calls this a paraphrase of the divine name in Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. And in such, it is a description of God the Father. And John then moves on to the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. And we read this in our text, where the Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days. John is sketching deity and God. Revelation then adds the seven spirits before his throne. This is John's language for the Holy Spirit. And then he comes to Christ, the King, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Notice how he's described here. Martus is the word witness, which becomes martyr. The firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. It takes imagination to be an imprisoned dissident on Patmos to think that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the one, he says, who freed us by his blood. Father, spirit, son. Dissidents worship this triune God. Christian dissidents know that this is the true God. The church calendar ends on today. Now, Jay may have to correct us. I'm I'm not real good on church calendar stuff. 
but I think I got this right. We go from Advent, that's the beginning of the church calendar, through Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Holy Week and Easter and Pentecost. How am I doing? Ordinary time. The last Sunday of ordinary time is Christ the King Sunday. That's today. We start all over next week. Do it all over again to remind ourselves of the life of Jesus. This is a day when we have been through the whole calendar to declare that the Jesus that we have learned about is the world's true ruler and king. Christ the King Sunday is the climax of the school year, or of the church calendar. It should be the school year. Only in Wheaton. Only in Wheaton. Okay, so it's the climax of the church calendar, and it's not like we just, okay, we get this over so we can start Advent. This is the goal of the church calendar, to declare that Jesus is the true Lord. John's with us. But it takes a dissident to believe that today. It takes a dissident to believe that Jesus is the true king. You read the prophets of the Old Testament, and you come away with what Richard Lisher said in a sermon at Duke Chapel. He said, each prophet in his own way, the prophet and the seer, speaks words that we desperately need to take into our hearts Each says this, I have seen the future, and it is God's. That's the word of a dissident, a prophet who says, the future of our world is in the hands of God. So the first characteristic of a dissident is that they worship this God and know that this Jesus is the world's true king, and therefore they defy Caesar. The second characteristic of a Christian dissident is they believe honestly that they are agents of redemption. Agents of redemption. Do we see ourselves in these terms? John's words about the Son in this trinity of God continue to him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. We have become a royal priesthood. It takes a fierce imagination to be a minority, marginalized, powerless, and imprisoned on Patmos, and to think that you are the royal priesthood. It's not just for males in John's book. It's not just the males in official religious clerical positions. This is males and females. We are all royal priesthood. Slave and free, Jew and Greek, Scythian, barbarian, Paul adds in Colossians 3. Imagination has the ability to turn a believer into thinking that what is altogether impossible has become suddenly possible. What is a royal priest? One who mediates between humans and God, but also at times between God and humans. Do we see ourselves as Christian dissidents 
who are royal priests, here in the kingdom of God, mediating for God. A priest is a mediator, one filled with prayer. And out of that prayer can become the presence of God to another person and the presence of another before God. That's what priests do. We are called to become dissidents, Christian dissidents as agents of redemption, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who spent one summer in New York City in his room at Union Seminary, smoking cigarettes constantly and trying to think his way out of where he was, typing. And when he left, someone went into his room and all he found were cigarettes, ashes, and crumpled pieces of paper. At the time, the main theologian in New York City was a man named Reinhold Niebuhr. And Bonhoeffer told Niebuhr this, Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that the Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying our civilization, Christian civilization. I know, he said to Niebuhr, which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make this choice in security. And he got on the next boat and he returned with begging offers from different universities and seminaries in the United States to stay. But he returned as an agent of redemption to Germany to fight the German powers that were under Hitler. It was a choice to enter the subversion of German nationalism for the sake of the German church. And I don't mean the German national church, but the confessing church. Let me use some German. A choice to enter the Abwehr in order to subvert the Wehrmacht, the resistance to take down the powers of the army, a choice to take upon himself the condition of German sinful people and violence in order to end that violence through the cross. You know Bonhoeffer's famous statement, which is better in English than it was in German. You know, he said, we said, he said, uh, he who you know, takes up the cross, um, he said, must endure it simply. This is the simple German. But the, the famous statement is that, uh, is that it's become poetic in English, and now I can't, it won't come to me. <laughs> I used to quote it in German all the time, and now I can't quote it in English. Well, I can't think of it. It doesn't matter. It'll come back. I'm 65. It'll come back in 10 minutes. In 10 minutes, I have a Medicare card to prove that I'm 65. When I look at Bonhoeffer, uh, who is my favorite theologian, I look at a man who knew what it meant to be a Christian in the world in which he lived. We are not World War II German Lutheran Christians. We are American. 21st century. Our president is Trump. We live in that world. 
How can we become redeeming agents? That's what John says. How can we become moral dissidents? If you don't think there's room for us to be moral dissidents, we're not looking. How can we become theological dissidents, ecclesial dissidents, social dissidents, structural dissidents, and political dissidents? That's the challenge of those who want to read the book of Revelation. And a third observation about Christian dissidents is that they live now in light of the final kingdom. Dissidents know what is ahead. Christian dissidents. They know the future is God's. They know that Jesus will be the judge and that he will slay sin and he will defeat death and he will erase evil. Jesus know, I mean dissidents know that Jesus will reward the righteous and let life be the last word and bring final and a good justice. But if you look at the book of Revelation, there is nothing more triumphalist than Christ the King Sunday. Is there? Nothing is more about conquering than the message that Jesus is the Lord. But Christian dissidents know that in the end, God will have to act to bring this judgment, to defeat death, slay sin, and erase evil. Christian dissidents know that the warrior king of Revelation is the lamb who was slain, that the way to victory is not with the sword, but with the cross. We may strive for justice, but what we need is Jesus the judge. We may fight for righteousness, but what we need is the royal righteous one. The future may be God's. That's what Christian dissidents believe. But what about now? The dissident fights for justice and for what is right now. Eugene Peterson calls this reversing thunder, bringing it back into the present world. Revelation is for those dissidents who are tired of moral nonsense and who long for the kingdom. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. But for people who are fed up with such bland fare in reading Revelation, the Revelation is a gift, a work of intense imagination that pulls its readers into a world of sky battles between angels and beasts lurid punishments and glorious salvations, kaleidoscopic vision and cosmic song. It is a world in which children are instinctively at home and in which adults, only by becoming little children, recapture an elemental involvement in the basic conflicts and struggles that permeate moral existence. And then they go on to discover again the soaring adoration and primal affirmations for which God made us. I love that. That's revelation. It shouldn't be read for speculation. It should be read for moral exhortation to encourage us to become the people God wants us to be. John didn't see these visions 
and then sit down in his cave in Patmos and construct a dispensational chart. Right? Come on. He saw these visions. You know, he's on Patmos. I, I can see it now. And he looked north and east and he saw Western Asia Minor. And he saw the rule of Rome. And he said, this may be the darkness of Good Friday, but Easter's coming. And in my teaching moments, I always finish Revelation with this. Maybe he had the look of Clint Eastwood. And he said, come on, division, make my day. <laughs>